Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again. This is Shelley. Because of the story we're covering in this episode, we'd like to issue a trigger warning. We'll be talking about topics like mental illness, suicide, murder, and suicidal ideation, which may be difficult for some listeners. Please use discretion when listening, and please take care. Here in the U.S., we hear stories of mass murders, sadly, pretty regularly. That violence takes on many forms. The killing of innocent children at school, people simply enjoying themselves at a nightclub or a concert, or in an office where an employee shows up intending to harm their bosses and coworkers. What we forget, however, is that in very, very rare but chilling instances, that same senseless violence has happened in the skies. This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. So Stephanie, as we always like to talk about, we like to travel. I'm wondering, in your trips, how often have you taken one of those amazing low-cost carriers while in Europe or elsewhere to basically get like quickly from one place to another? You know, we've actually done that quite a bit in the recent past. Uh, we prefer train travel because you see more, but it's hard to turn down a $29 ticket even if it means the legroom is going to be terrible, and even if it means they are going to get you on the other end as far as luggage costs and, oh, that bottle of water is going to cost you a whole bunch. They're famous for add-ons. Oh, it's ridiculous. But, you know, we, we've done it often ourselves, too, and we've used airlines like, you know, EasyJet and the like. It, it really is, though, an efficient way to get from one place to another. Well, this is the setting of our story for this episode I describe this story using several words. You're going to find it maybe, perhaps like I did, infuriating, it's nightmarish, and it's just all around heartbreaking. It's March 24th, 2015. At Barcelona Airport in Spain, German Wings Flight 9525, which is an A320, is about to take off. For those of you who may not know, like I did... German Wings was founded in 2002, part of the Lufthansa Group, and is one of the main low-cost carriers serving many European routes. In the cockpit, we have Captain Patrick Sondenheimer with 10 years of flying experience. Co-pilot Andreas Lubitz has been flying with German Wings for a little over a year, and Lubitz will be the flying pilot for this flight. There are 144 passengers on board, and most are from Germany and Spain. Maria Radner, a prominent opera singer, is on board, along with her partner and their toddler son, Felix. And we also have 16 high school students and two teachers from the German town of Haltern returning from a week-long exchange program. The students included Leah Drupal, a gregarious 15-year-old with dreams of being a professional musician and stage actress, and her best friend and next-door neighbor, Kaya Westerman, also 15. Just after 10 a.m., the plane is airborne, breaks through the clouds, and climbs out toward the sun. Their route heads them toward the French Alps and finally to their destination in Dusseldorf for a trip that is scheduled to be just 2 hours and 20 minutes of total flying time. Sweet and short. At 10.27, the Airbus has reached its cruising altitude of 38,000 feet. Four minutes later, air traffic control, or ATC, notices that the plane is descending, without permission. This is obviously alarming and surprising, and ATC wants to know what's going on. You know, maybe they need help. Something maybe is going wrong. The point is they just don't know. Yeah, descending to where? Exactly. All they know is that they're dropping steadily, losing about 10,000 feet of altitude in just 
minutes. I mean, could you imagine being the air traffic controller and witnessing the witnessing this and all the thoughts that might go through your head? It's going to be really confusing. I mean, we we know that this, these things do happen. I mean, we're talking about a number of stories where people lose contact with air traffic control, but. In the moment, the day-to-day, you don't see this kind of thing. So it's definitely cause for alarm. It's absolutely alarming. In fact, the control center is now in emergency mode. So ATC is trying frantically to contact the plane, but there's no response each time they do. They ask another plane flying nearby to try and contact flight 9525, but they also get no answer. The plane is now below 7,000 feet, and the mountains are coming closer. ATC watches the radar helplessly as the altitude gets lower and lower, and then they lose contact with the plane as it drops below where radar can any longer detect them. It is shortly thereafter that the plane crashes into the side of a mountain in the French Alps at an unbelievable and high rate of speed at 430 miles per hour. Wow. News spreads quickly. So remember, this is 2015. We now have social media in the mix, and Twitter is absolutely on fire. People are asking lots of questions. Could you imagine if you had a loved one on that flight, perhaps seeing that news ahead of any formal notification? That's why social media can be really scary in situations like this. There are so many times where something happens, and it's online before people can be notified. Exactly. After just one hour, searchers spot the wreckage. What they find is an aircraft shattered into tiny bits and pieces, which makes it obvious that no one has survived. What they also find horrifying is the charred remains of the plane and its passengers, their burnt shirts and shoes strewn across the terrain among the tatters of the aircraft, and the solemn remains of teddy bears and dolls belonging to the children who perished on board. Oh, that's haunting. It is the worst air disaster on French soil in over three decades. It is also German Wings' first fatal crash in the 18-year history of the company. Immediately, as we can all imagine, the public wants answers, and everyone is scrambling to figure out what happened. But the ugly and heartbreaking truth will reveal itself fairly quickly. As it would, the BEA investigates. So again, as we've talked about, they're similar to the U.S.'s NTSB. Yep. In France, though, this is an interesting fact. Authorities automatically open a criminal investigation alongside of the BEA investigation whenever there's a plane crash. Really? Yep. They apparently work side by side with the BEA to make sure that if there were any criminal factors that they can bring charges. That makes sense. Standard BEA procedures are to check if weather is always a factor. But on March 24th, flying conditions were nearly perfect, so they quickly conclude it's not the weather. This crash also comes on the heels of the Paris terror attacks at Charlie Hebdo. So some are wondering if this, too, is a terrorist attack. Investigators examine radar data to see if a bomb blast is the possible cause. What they find is a straight, controlled path downward. And this reveals that the plane was completely under control all the way until it crashed into the mountain. It looks like a normal descent, but basically at the exact wrong time. And there was no evidence of an in-flight breakup based on the wreckage. So all of this suggests that a bomb is absolutely not the cause. Investigators then consult with the ATC to see if they had any information, not as eyewitnesses, but just in case they noticed something unusual, which of course, as we know, they did. They tell investigators about the mysterious descent and that they tried contacting the plane 11 times, but they never received a response. 
Investigators next consider mechanical issues as a factor. Obviously, if something went wrong with the plane, investigators want to know why, because there's plenty of A320 aircraft in use at this very moment. But then finally, they find the cockpit voice recorder, or the CVR, and this is just on the first day of the investigation, and what's on it helps them to understand the plane's fate. On the CVR, they hear the captain running the checklist, so they know that First Officer Lubitz is the flying pilot. Nothing so far seems amiss. Twelve minutes after takeoff, a flight attendant requests access to the cockpit. General conversation ensues, you know, about the flight, about food. And then Captain Sondenheimer tells Lubitz to begin preparing for landing since it was only a two-hour flight. Lubitz's response, though, is interesting. Hopefully, he said, we'll see. It's unclear if Captain Sondenheimer noted the odd language or even thought anything of it because he really didn't say anything in response. Thinking about it now, though, that sounds very ominous. Completely. That's not a normal response to that. It's usually like yes, no, affirmative, got it, in process. Yeah, that's definitely not what we we'll would see. Is not generally what you want to hear. It's not good. Odd that he didn't respond to that though. Right. Then Lubitz tells the captain, you know, hey, if you need to go to the bathroom, now would be a good time. And so at 10.30 a.m., Captain Sondenheimer pushes back from his seat and leaves the cockpit. This is the exact moment that the plane begins descending. No voices can be heard in the cockpit for two minutes, then three minutes, then four. All that can be heard is the sound of the first officer breathing. This is key because it indicates the plane probably did not suffer a fatal depressurization. That's when ATC is heard beginning to contact the plane, but it's clear the first officer is not responding, but why he doesn't respond is unclear. Then investigators hear a beep, beep, beep. The captain is trying to regain access to the cockpit. All the first officer must do is flip a switch to open the door, but he doesn't. They can hear more breathing from the first officer. The captain tries contacting the cockpit through the intercom, but he gets no answer. Then they can hear the distinct sound of banging on the cockpit door. The captain is trying desperately to get into the cockpit. He was yelling for Lubitz to let him in and unlock the door. He can be heard saying, for the love of God, open this door. This tells investigators that there was something desperately wrong going on based on the captain's anguished attempts at getting back inside the cockpit. The captain clearly knows something is wrong. That also meant that the cabin crew and probably most of the passengers, if not all, knew they were in danger and maybe they even knew that they were going to die. Yeah, they would hear that pounding. I mean, could you imagine seeing the captain of the flight all of a sudden, you know, just pounding and yelling at the front of the plane for him to get back, you know, open the door, open yeah, the door. Yeah, your blood would run cold It's panic time. On that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Flight 9525 crashes into the side of the mountain. It's just 10 minutes after the captain left the cockpit. Investigators are completely baffled and chilled. The possibility becomes clear. Either the first officer was incapacitated but still breathing and no one else was impacted by this incapacitation, just him, or he deliberately crashed the plane. Investigators start digging into Lubitz's background. His friends and family refuse to speak with them, so investigators look at his personnel files, and it's there where they find some initial insights and answers. In 2009, Lubitz spent nine months in a psychiatrist's care after suffering a severe depression. Six months into that care, the doctor recommended that Lubitz be allowed to resume his flight training, even though the doctor continued to treat Lubitz and prescribe him powerful drugs three months after having told aviation officials that he had fully recovered. 
Eventually, shortly thereafter, Lubitz's student pilot's license was reinstated and his fit-to-fly medical certificate was amended with the designation SIC for specific regular examination. This notation would stay on Lubitz's record, so that meant any further psychiatric treatment for depression, any more meds, would result in his automatic grounding, something of which Lubitz was surely aware. Then in preparation for Lufthansa flight school in Arizona, he was caught lying on his required student pilot form when he answered no to the question about if he had ever been diagnosed with, quote, mental disorders of any sort, depression, anxiety, etc., end quote. An aviation doctor in Germany who vets documents for the U.S. agency luckily spotted Lubitz's false statement and reported it. But amazingly, this falsehood delayed but did not derail the process. The FAA basically gave him an opportunity to straighten things out. They asked him to submit a current detailed status report from his prescribing physician. And this time, he did come clean, admitting his history of depression and complying with the request for a doctor's report. Apparently, this was enough to satisfy the authorities on both sides of the Atlantic. Weeks later, he was on his way to flight school. So this is interesting because as I was reading about this, apparently lying on those official documents, if you're a pilot, can actually be punishable by going to jail. And so that kind of paints the picture of how fortunate Lubitz was. And I don't want to say an exception because I really am not familiar with the practices, but it was definitely lucky for him to have not suffered any major repercussions because of his lying. You think about, too, when you are applying for work anywhere, usually the application will say any anywhere that you have falsified information or not provided complete information is either grounds for dismissal or is grounds for your application to not proceed. Completely. And Although mistakes happen, that's a big one. And so it is interesting, unless there were some really valid reason why he may have misunderstood the question or maybe incorrectly checked a box or something like that, you would wonder what that conversation looked like. Exactly. Because I think it would be, especially when you're thinking about, you know, something as sensitive as mental health, you may, you may want to you know, avoid talking about certain sensitive topics when it comes to your own health. But when it comes to an application like that, you really can't omit anything. No. And it, it's surprising it would be caught and yet there would be a path forward still. You're, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's true. There is a lot of stigma related to mental illness and that's unfortunate and it's unfair. Oh, it and at the same time, all of us have this you know, obligation to think about what is the right thing and when should I disclose? And clearly he needed to disclose. Mm -hmm. So Lubitz returned to Germany in the spring of 2011 to continue his training on jets. There were no further documented mental challenges. And in the fall of 2013, he joined German wings, advancing quickly to first officer. He received regular checkups from company doctors. His last checkup was seven months prior to the crash. All medical examiners that saw him felt that he was fine to fly, and he did fly safely for many years, but in the months leading up to the crash, he took a turn for the worse. Here's what's interesting. He felt he was losing his eyesight, but there was no proof of an actual condition, even though he saw, and wait for this, 41 doctors for the eyesight 41? issue. 41? It is not clear if any of the doctors knew he was seeing so many other doctors 
or if they even knew he was a pilot. In Lubitz's apartment, German investigators make more discoveries that complete the chilling picture of what was happening with Lubitz's mental state. They find a recent doctor's note saying that he should not fly, dated just days before the crash. It was later found that Lufthansa did not know how serious the situation was. In fact, not a single doctor raised the issue with the airline, and that's because it's expected that the pilot will provide those notes to the airline. But Lubitz did not. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're trying to cover something up or, I mean, frankly, if you get a letter, you get information you don't want to share, what would force you to do so? Right. And, you know, it sounds like it's probably based a little bit like on the honor system. But imagine, you know, the repercussion if he got caught for not disclosing is he could have his license revoked, right? So I think in some cases, these rules are put in place and they say, this consequence is so severe, surely everybody would do what's right in this situation. They would disclose because the alternative is, I lose the ability to fly ever again. But it definitely creates a loophole, right? If you have someone who really is trying to hide it, essentially. You have to assume, too, that someone is able to think clearly and rationally. And there are times where people are not able to do so for a number of reasons and because of a number of conditions. And if he suffered from one of those, then that would absolutely prevent him from being able to do what someone might otherwise expect uh, someone would, would choose. I mean, it's difficult to understand why that you'd have an honor system in place for that. And when examining his internet browser history, investigators found that Lubitz searched for the most efficient means of ending his life. Search terms such as producing carbon monoxide, drinking gasoline, which poison kills without pain were found. Oh, no. On March 18th, just nine days before the crash, A physician wrote a sick leave note for Lubitz, effective for four days, indicating that Lubitz suffered from, quote, a persistent vision disorder with a thus far unknown origin, end quote. A couple of days later, while at home on March 20th, Lubitz searched the internet for information about the locking mechanism on an Airbus A320 cockpit door. On March 22nd, just two days before the crash, the day before returning to work, Lubitz scribbled Decision Sunday, along with the flight code BCN for Barcelona, on a scrap of notebook paper that was later retrieved from the trash in his apartment. Below that heading, Lubitz listed several options. Find the inner will to work and continue to live. Deal with stress and sleeplessness. Let myself go. Then, investigators finally find the flight data recorder, which provides the final set of details for what happened on 9525. This flight was Lubitz's second flight of the day. On his first flight, the data reveals he was alone in the cockpit and made some altitude changes to 100 feet, but he changed it back once the captain came back into the cockpit. Investigators take this to mean that he was rehearsing for the actual crash on his next flight. Oh, no. And then finally, on flight 9525, flight data shows that Lubitz dropped the altitude to its lowest setting and the speed dial to its maximum setting, showing that he was actively controlling the plane and was conscious until the end. The cause of the crash of flight 9525 has finally been confirmed, pilot suicide and murder. Experts agree that Lubitz was suffering from a psychotic depression, which is much worse and completely different than someone who suffers from a non-psychotic depression. But as we know, depression is a, it's a treatable illness, and every profession in the world has people who suffer from it. And this likely includes pilots who 
with treatment can resume flying very imperfectly safely. But many wonder, when was the moment this disaster could have been prevented? Over 40 doctors knew the situation, and none of them raised the flag. But doctors in Germany have a good reason not to. They face prosecution if they break confidentiality. They relied on Lubitz to select himself out of flying, but as we know, he didn't. German privacy laws are generally restrictive, but they do allow psychiatrists to notify relevant parties, including an employer, if they believe a patient could present a danger to the lives of others. But Lubitz's doctor seems to have made no such attempt to contact Lufthansa about Lubitz's relapse, which is a fatal mistake. Um, So, yeah, I think it's important to just kind of pause here. I think it's really important to make clear that we do not think anybody with mental illnesses are all suicidal or even homicidal, but most are, you know, most are not a harm to themselves, to to themselves or even to others. And I've been touched by suicide throughout my life. And I know how tragic that is and how terribly some people suffer with mental illness. It's just as bad as any physical disease, but this is absolutely a tragedy about someone who in their desperation to make the pain go away, ends up taking a whole plane full of people with him and in the process, commits mass murder. And that is just by, I think, universal laws, all wrong. And it's this is difficult, too, because from some of the details that emerged, the, you know, the plan in place yes. and the, the thought process, I don't get the sense that this was personal to anyone else on board. This is someone's desperate attempt to make the pain go away. Mm-hmm. This is not a murder attempt, even if there are portions of it that are classified in such a way. This is not a statement about someone who was looking to harm others. This is someone who was going through something absolutely, probably unimaginable. Yeah. And this was the, based on what you shared, the the notes, there are, you know, here's here are my options. And he couldn't find another way that would have perhaps reduced the pain. This is not someone who wanted to suffer anymore. And he had a tool to use. Yeah. It is unfortunate that there were not precautions or protocols that could have stopped that. And I mean, I, I absolutely think confidentiality is critical in most workplaces, especially when it comes to any element of someone's health. Mm Mm-hmm. But to think about the fact that there was information out there that, if shared, might have either, at at the very least, removed him from the cockpit that day, and at the very best, maybe brought him to a space where he could have received life-saving treatment. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what's very hard to think about. It is. And, you know, we don't know the extent to which he was consciously aware of the fact that he would be taking people with him, right? It may have just been to him an opportunity. We have no idea. But to your point, there were so many missteps, and I think that's really where this this tragedy, you know, kind of exists. Yeah. So when with the findings of the crash, um, the BEA calls for clear rules for healthcare providers in these kinds of situations, given the privacy laws. They also recommend more stringent mental health evaluations for airline pilots. Uh, Some people were asking when this happened, you know, why is there no system 
for wrestling control of a plane from the person who is in control, maybe by like the control tower or the other pilot. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, such a system does exist, according at least to the Daily Mail, but it's not being used. So in 2006, Boeing was awarded a patent for an uninterrupted autopilot system with its own power supply that could be activated by those on board a plane or on the ground. However, as we typically do, uh, there were folks that raised safety concerns, including the possibility that such a system could be hacked. And that really has prevented its oh, rollout. Sure. The crash also raised questions about the cockpit door mechanism, which Lubitz used to keep the pilot out. The system, which allows a pilot to override the coded entry mechanism on the outside of the door, was designed, of course, in the event of a terrorist emergency. And experts posit that airlines are going to have to balance those concerns against the possibility that individuals like Lubitz might decide to do harm. But as we know, this is a very extremely rare occurrence. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the victims, uh, there was a lot of things that they went through in the aftermath of this tragedy. So Lufthansa was quick to advance money to the families for funeral and travel expenses up to 50,000 euros each. And its liaison officers had seemed genuinely grief-stricken and ashamed that one of their own had caused the tragedy. But the company's chief executive projected really an image of cluelessness immediately after the crash, telling the public that Lubitz had been, quote, 100% fit to fly, end quote, and insisting that he saw no need to change the airline screening procedures. Yikes. Then, I know, That's right? That's a little tone deaf. Right. Then a Lufthansa spokesman outraged the families by describing the airline as a victim as similar to the passengers. So putting the airline and the passengers on equal ground in terms of being victims, I think, is also a very bad move, just completely tasteless. Oh, that's a PR nightmare right, right there. You can't assume – oh, no, you can't make the assumption that no. a, an organization can feel what people who lost loved ones can feel. Not at all. Ooh. So many missteps. So in sticking to the letter of European laws that sharply limit an airline's liability in crashes, Lufthansa offered each family of the dead an additional 25,000 euros, about $27,500, for the victim's, quote, pain and suffering, end quote, plus the amount previously issued. The families soon banded together, though, to fight back with a civil lawsuit, and through that, they were able to extract an additional 10,000 euros per family member from the airline. Throughout the entire ordeal, Lubitz's family staunchly maintained their son's innocence and claimed that turbulence caused an incapacitation which caused the crash. Lubitz's ex-girlfriend had a different impression of him. She claimed that the year before the crash, he told her, quote, one day I am going to do something that will change the whole system and everyone will know my name and remember, end quote. So remember, in all of this, we've talked a lot about Lubitz, but there were passengers on that plane that their lives ended that day. So here are some of the people that were killed. As we mentioned, a group of 16 students made up of 14 girls and two boys and two of their teachers from Joseph Koenig School in Western Germany were traveling back from a Spanish exchange program. So imagine the loss of that young, young life. Mm -hmm. A family of six from a town near Barcelona were also lost, among them three generations of the entire family. Ugh. And three Americans died, among them was Yvonne Selke, who worked as a contractor for the Pentagon Satellite Mapping Office, and she was traveling on board with her adult daughter, Emily. 
And lastly, of course, our hero, Captain Sondenheimer, who tried everything possible to get back into the cockpit to save the plane and everyone on board. He was the married father of a three-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter, and he switched to flying for German wings so he could be closer to his family. He was described by a colleague as, quote, one of the best pilots we ever had, end quote. And that is the heartbreaking story of German Wings Flight 9525. That's a tough one. It's a lot in there, right? It's like nobody wins in this one. No. You know, it's. I feel like sometimes you want to immediately go to, you know, whatever the silver lining might look like, you know. You want to start talking about, well, at least there was a change in policy or, you know, the the legacy lives on. And in this case, there's just so much sadness Mm -hmm. that clouds so much of that story. Mm -hmm. There were so many warning signs and so many decisions not to take action on those. And I'm still somewhat stuck on him seeing 41 doctors. That's incredible, isn't it? And no one comes up with a diagnosis. And I, you wonder, too, you, I, I mean, I, I'd assume that, especially with privacy laws as they are, these doctors are not communicating. He is going to them independently. He is seeking a first opinion and a second opinion and a 41st opinion. And there's no opportunity for communication between them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if someone thought that they were the 41st person that you know he had seen for this, maybe there would be some cause for concern there. Exactly. And... You know, it's. I wonder too. He because this was for a concern he had with his vision. Yes, and which may not have actually been a real thing. It could have been manifested out of his depression and anxiety. They said there was no actual proof that it even existed. Though, had it been a real thing, that would have meant he probably could not have been able to fly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Because I wonder if that was the cry for help. I am trying to not be. A pilot. I am trying to not sit in the cockpit. I am trying to come up with a reason why I cannot fly. And that reason cannot be depression. Yeah. It cannot be what is going on inside of me. Mm-hmm. Especially knowing he had sought treatment. Clearly what he had been what he had received had not been right for him. Yeah. You know, there are there are many very effective ways to treat depression, but I think the key word there is many. What works for someone may not work as well or at all for someone else and so if he were in a situation where he just had not yet received the treatment that was going to change his life or put him on a path toward recovery then I would assume things would be awfully gloomy for him and if what he was doing was trying to find a reason not to fly a plane anymore but he couldn't get that reason yeah I don't know I definitely you know everything I've read it sounded like he absolutely was terrified of not being able to fly. And it's almost like it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. of, oh, look, I have something wrong with my eyes. Now I'm not going to be able to fly. Oh, no. And at you the know? same time, his, his Google search history indicated that he was looking for other ways to end his life. Yep. So flying a plane into a mountain was effective, but it also doesn't seem that it was the first choice. Exactly. And that's where I also come back to the idea that this was very personal for him. Yeah. But although there were many people who were unjustly impacted, and in fact, many lives lost in an incident that should never have been able to occur, I also wouldn't 
make the assumption that he did that intentionally. If he could have been on an empty plane, perhaps he would have been. But I think that's what makes this particular story somewhat difficult to think about. Yeah. You know, there's you yeah, you look for for something you can take away, some, some you know, something positive, and it's hard to do that. Yeah. With yeah. this one. Yep, this one is definitely a real bummer for it, sure. It really is. It really is. But you know, I think the important thing also to stress here is this is a, such a very rare occurrence, right? We don't hear oh, the typical reason for crashes is the pilot, you know, flew the plane into X whatever, you know, the situation. So I think that is at least the one small measure of relief or reassurance that we can all tell ourselves. And in fact, as we know, and this is really a part of our mission here at this podcast, is that we aren't telling the stories to spread fear or make people nervous about flying. It's really because there are some extraordinary stories and we want to make sure that, you know, passengers who have died because of situations, whether it's pilot error, pilot intent, whatever, mm -hmm. that we, we tell their stories, right? Yeah. I think that's really important. So yeah, I mean, this is a story that, I mean, when we think about the word tragedy, this is absolutely what that was. And it's also a really complicated story with a lot of different layers to it. And, you know, I'm glad that we, we got to explore a lot of that here uh, in this, this episode. It's definitely a story that stays with you. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of heavy. and uh, It really does. You know, but hey, as we have noticed lately, these are kind of heavy times. A lot of stuff is, is going on, not related to plane crashes, thankfully, but unfortunately related to, to other things, COVID-19, quarantine, mm -hmm. right? This is our, our new life right now. So how, how have you been doing? You know, things have been pretty good. And one of the reasons for that is because of the community that I live in. So I, the thing keeping me sane these days are opportunities to go out for walks. I mean, I was never much of an outdoor person until this happened. And now I am outside walking around the neighborhood basically anytime I can. And today was kind of fun. Um, my neighborhood put together a safari. So houses would have stuffed animals all over the place. You know, you'd wow. have like teddy bears peeking out of the bushes. I saw this amazing, like eight foot tall blue sloth hanging out of somebody's tree. <laughs> and it gave the kids something to do. Also, it gave me something to do, but mostly it was for the kids. And basically like sure. what you do is you'd walk around and you could take a look at all of the different types of animals. It was sort of fun to basically, you know, like as you're walking past people's property to glance over and see if they were playing along. And I don't know, it just brought this kind of nice moment of levity to what feels, you know, like you said, it's just a really heavy situation, but such a fun way to bring people together and give kids an opportunity to get outside and do something creative. And frankly, as a pseudo grown up, I really enjoyed being able to walk around and see that too. I love that. I think that's such an amazing example. You know what that actually reminds me of? This reminds me of a story I think I actually came across it in fairness like a little bit ago. So I'm not going to give you too much context. I'm just going to read it here because it just like your story really warmed my heart. I think oh, this one's going to warm story. heart too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> when Grayson Mulligan left his bear on a Southwest flight over the Thanksgiving holiday, his parents were desperate to find it. Sadly, the bear never turned up. 
but a team of Southwest employees were so moved by the Mulligan search that they decided to offer up the next best thing, an adorable new bear who seems to have quite a bit of experience in the air travel industry. Southwest sent the bear to Grayson along with loads of photos of his new friend working on the tarmac, preparing the cabin of a flight, and even inspecting the cockpit. Isn't that adorable? That is amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is, that is seriously like the most heartwarming thing. It's so it's so great. It's just such a cute little story. And again, I feel like all of us during these times, you know, when we get that heartwarming or positive story, we're like, yes, let's tell that. Let's like live in that moment for just a second. You, you know, need something to latch on to these days. And I, I don't know, I've got a soft spot for anything involving a stuffed animal. I think it goes back to like Paddington Bear or something like that. Oh, no, I know it goes back to the Velveteen Rabbit. That story Ooh, ruined yes. me, like completely. Yeah, like a whole generation of kids, I oh, think, right? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, I still have stuffed animals I can't part with because of that book. I, I fully blame that portion of my childhood for all of that. So mm. hearing a story like that, I don't know. That You're right. That is something we just need to hear and latch on to at this point. Yep. And when a story's good, a story is good. And you know what? We have a lot of stories here left to tell that we really want to share with folks. Um, so yeah, we can't wait to share them with you here at Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast with your co-host, me, Shelly Price, and Stephanie Hubka. Um, if you're feeling social, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Take to the Sky Podcast. And you can also find us on our website at taketothesky.podcast.com. That's where you'll find our episode pages, including the one for this episode along with show notes and links to the sources that guide our research. And you can also send us ideas for future episodes or frankly, your quarantine stories. We'd love to hear those. Mm -hmm. um, you can send them to us there through our contact page. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen. And most of all, thanks for joining us.